And we hear all the time about people that, you know, that it has changed their lives. It saved them a half an hour in commute time or um, people now could even contemplate, you know, not living right on the bus line or on the, at the train stop in urban environments where usually you're paying top dollar to live within half a mile of any of those services. You could live a mile out and, and scoot right in. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we sit down with Andrew Savage, a Vermonter, mid-kid, and vice president, head of sustainability, and founding team member at Lime, one of the most disruptive transportation companies in the world. Welcome. This is Sam Roach-Gerber and Dave Bradbury, recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Andrew. Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for uh, scootering in to see us today, Andrew. Oh, of course, <laughs> anytime. All right, Sam, we, this is a big deal. Yeah, this is a big deal. And I, I was like, cool, yeah, we're going to do a podcast with Andrew Limes. Cool, I guess. And then I actually rode a scooter when I was down in Baltimore a couple weeks ago. Game freaking changer. I... I'm like, now I know what Dave was yamming about all those she months. She came back a changed person. She thought I was a bit of a lunatic saying how awesome it was in my 17 rides and 48 hours in Austin, Texas. So, It's um, a pretty magical experience, isn't it? When you first take the scooter ride or you use it to get off the bus and get home faster, it, it does change people's lives. And, and I, it seems silly to say that, but people really are mesmerized by it. It, it changes the way you see a city. Yeah. Right. It's fun and... Um, super inexpensive too. I mean, it, it, it actually, uh, I, I guess the biggest thing that really is, um, uncertain is do you ride like a skateboard, Andrew, or do you go side by side sort of parallel feet? Um, or do you put one foot forward, one foot back? Cause I think it depends on how cool you are. You know, it depends like, you know, if Kevin Pierce were riding it or like, yeah. you know, well, you're a skier, right? So yeah. you're probably not cool going so side by side or I ride it a little bit like one foot forward, one foot okay. back. Yes. I think, you know, you ride however is comfortable. So, um, but people definitely find creative ways to ride them. That's for sure. Man, well, I got really excited and jumped like 10 he- questions ahead. But let's just take a step back before we get too excited here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Andrew. Are you from Vermont? What's your story? Yeah, so I grew up in Calais, north of Montpelier. Um, very Vermont. Very Vermont. Grew up um, on 100 acres of land in a 200-year-old farmhouse with a twin brother who I fought with endlessly um, and an older sister, uh, but we're all extremely close, uh, two very hardworking parents, and um, went to public high school. Um, as you mentioned, went to Middlebury College after high school, um, but did have a great quintessential Vermont upbringing and absolutely loved it. And I think it taught me a lot of the hard work and resiliency that you need in startup life, that you need in life in general, and, and I probably can't say enough good things about uh, growing up there. Is that where you think your, your interest in entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial mindset came about, you know, being on a, a farm or at the end of the dirt road where you kind of had to make do? I, I think a little bit. I was actually just sort of smiling. My brother and I are super close. We did, as any sort of twin brothers probably do. We fought endlessly, but um, we were always, like, back and forth with, like, we, when one of us wanted a little bit of money, we'd, like, have a yard sale among the two of us. Uh, I once, uh, speaking of entrepreneurship, I once bought his workbench. My dad uh, made us two two foot long workbenches side by side so we could tinker, we could take apart toys. 
And one time he was strapped for cash and I bought his workbench <laughs> from him and put a piece of plywood over the four feet and suddenly had this expanse that he never got back. So it was my, uh, my first bout in uh, real estate. You were a monopoly. Uh, a little yeah, bit, yeah. yeah right. Well, my dad Predator. still had more. He was actually the smarter one because my dad, just like two feet away, had you know unlimited space rent-free. So um, he did all right, too. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we definitely... Um, we're always tinkering, always thinking of creative things. My Both of my parents uh, were small business people. They started their own businesses. Uh, my dad started a Red Sox fantasy camp back in the 1980s, which uh, became uh, very well known. Um, and then my mom was an, an artist and started her own business. So oh, we sort of had that in, in our blood. Sounds like sort of creative people. Jeez. A little bit. Yeah, for sure. I'm you know, super proud of what they accomplished and how they raised us. Do you think if you had the internet in Callis, you would have been an entrepreneur like that? Interesting. That's a good question. Or would you just spend <laughs> you, all your time like playing around on Facebook? Screwing and around, never, yeah, exactly. exactly. So, all right, no, we'll I think, think about that one. Better to be outside and getting creative, you know? Yeah, I don't like, I've considered myself very lucky to not have had much internet growing up. I, I, th- I think it would be so different. It's just hard to even imagine the same childhood. And I, you know, the dial up sounds still play in my head. So, oh, I remember, yeah, I remember we actually had a light switch that turned off the computer when you left the room. And so that same dial up sound was also synonymous with someone have, leaving the room, instinctively turning it off and losing half of their homework and screaming. Oh. And yeah, so, you know. We could have figured that out. I think we could have uh, fixed that problem. Man. Anyway. Love the cloud. Those were the days. Um, so, all right. What is Lime? I mean, Dave and I jumped in because we were just so excited. But for some of our listeners, they may not know what it is. Yes. Yeah, so we're a mobility company. And right now we operate electric scooters and, um, and shared bike programs in over 25 countries, across five continents now, and over 100 markets. And... Essentially, what it is, is it's an app-based program that allows people to use a bike or a scooter in the markets that we operate, pay for it, um, and unlock it by the touch of a phone, um, and ride it and leave it um, at their final destination. So most folks are familiar with traditional station-based programs, bike bike share programs. We sort of put a modern spin on that by having... Um, it be one completely app based, and then two be dock free, and that allows for just the total convenience of being able to pick one up when you see it and get to your final destination without wondering where you're going to end up, how close is the station to where your destination is, especially in a new city. Um, and so that that lack of friction really has allowed for the proliferation of these programs around the globe, and we just happen to be right in the middle of that as these programs have expanded. Not having to dock is not something that I had thought of as like a a great feature when you're using it. Oh my God. It's a game changer. It's a complete game changer. Yeah. It takes away the sort of the question of the unknowable of you. If you rent the, the bike back in the day, now the scooter, and you know, you have to leave it somewhere in particular, you don't have the flexibility of meeting, seeing a friend and grabbing a cup of coffee. You don't have the flexibility of deciding you want to go a different direction and you're sort of stuck with this thing you're renting. It's actually, in many ways, uh, saddles you with an encumbrance rather than uh, the, the, the flexibility of mobility. And so that's really what we're after. So we view ourselves as very much uh, a mobility company that is looking to transform how people get around the urban environment. You know, I've, I've 
commented this before on the podcast, like great businesses can be found when it's fun and fabulous or it gets rid of friction or it gets rid of frustration, right? And, and you check the boxes with Lime scooters and Lime bikes on, on all of those. So I'm not uh, surprised to see this tremendous reception in, in so many markets. Um, I just want it here. I know. Right now. Right with, now. With, with like a heated grip, maybe. We probably need that in yeah. Vermont. Like, if, <laughs> like a snowmobile would have. And studded tires. Studded tires, yeah. yeah. Studded yeah. tires, for um, sure. So did you really um, write the, the business plan while you were here in Vermont for, for Lyme? No. Was that, okay, no? Okay. No. Um, so I was, actually, I was actually here talking with you guys about starting a whole separate Something else. business idea. And was then we then had the opportunity, my wife and I, to move out west, which wasn't something that was necessarily in the game plan, but we've moved around a bunch and sort of taken opportunities as they came. And um, I was in the solar industry here in Vermont for about six years and was introduced to Toby and Brad, who are um, two of the founders of the company. And... Um, we met, started talking, and, and um, I moved out, and I moved out to go help start Lime. I remember talking to you about that, and I was like, "Dude, are you really going to go start another bike share company? Like, loser move, Dave. <laughs> loser oh move." So, um, this, I mean, this does, is going to go in the folder of like really shitty advice I've given. Like over the course of my career, there's there's a couple in there, and this this may be one. So, thank you for ignoring me. I'm not sure if it was intentional or um, I, I definitely wasn't ignoring you. I think it's something that you just you, you wouldn't have known how big it was going to be um, two and a half years ago, um, based on a whole number of factors. But it obviously has tapped into something that I think globally, you know, you have an increase in urbanization, uh, you have an increase in um, in the use of of smartphones in a dramatic way across the globe. Um, a rapid increase in congestion, and a lot of those things are coming together to have people really wanting to rethink urban life and mobility. And so it just, I think, happened to tap into something that's really quite special with being able to merge technology with a hardware mobility and and really the like magical experience of, of taking a new mode around. And you know, a lot of people grew up with scooters. I definitely did not on a dirt road in Calais grow up with scooters. But you hear a lot about people saying, I haven't been on a scooter or ridden a bike in 15 years or 30 years. And, and again, that's something that people really feel excited about when they, it comes to their city and they have a new way of getting around. I think that was the thing that struck me most of seeing this explosion in Baltimore was it's truly everyone. I saw kids, I saw a, like a, just men in suits going to work, which was just so cool. And like groups of, you know, teenagers, like the whole spectrum. And it was, it just struck me as this is a truly inclusive mode of transportation. Yeah, we haven't talked about affordability yet, but that's a major factor that it's actually much cheaper to take a scooter than, than grab an Uber or a Lyft. Um, it can be cheaper than taking a bus. Take a it, bus, it, It's yeah. certainly vastly cheaper than owning a car and driving a car and paying for parking. And you're right. I mean, it does span the sort of socioeconomic and racial and gender and all the sort of different you know types that we might have in a really powerful way. I mean, bike share, just as an example, 
um, has always suffered with a sort of male-female divide. And I think 25% of riders um, identify as women. Uh, we're already at 32%, which is you know, a good 7% higher than uh, a service that's been around for a decade. And that's, you know, I think we're just getting started. We clearly are just getting started. So you do see that. You talk to the mayor of St. Louis and you hear from her how ubiquitous and widely available the services and how diverse the ridership that she sees is. And that's really important to us. So it really, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting to hear that because that's really what we're all about. It, it stunned me again in Austin just to see, um, you know, the physical fitness. I thought like, oh, all right, maybe I got to be a college athlete to do this. It didn't seem like that was a prerequisite, right? It seemed very accessible right. and understandable to use. Um, and then at the hotel I was in, um, there are as many of the Lime scooters at the front entry for folks in suits as there were in the back entry for people working the convention center and the kitchen. So it just said, to your point, right. it's affordable, it's accessible. And uh, I wasn't expecting that. You know, I, I thought it would be a little bit more elitist, and it, it's, it wasn't that that experience that I saw. Yeah, I just love hearing that. Even though, you know, I can observe that and I can tell that story. I, like when I hear people observe it with their own eyes, it really like speaks to what we're all about, what we're trying to do. And frankly, what will happen when we have 10 times more scooters in all the cities that we're talking about here, when it becomes something that is is seen as the mode of transportation or the first mode if you're going between, you know, a quarter of a mile and a mile and a half, um, and how impactful that could be on cities, on congestion, on how cities design themselves, and how you use lanes of traffic for protected lanes, et cetera. So it's just, you know, when you hear that, it's just a heartwarming thing that all that work, because it has been a ton of work, um, has an impact in a way that is, you know, far more than just a small slice of, of, of life. Yeah, and I saw no electric bikes on, on either the front or the rear, it yeah. was all like maybe ninety percent scooters. So that was uh, also is that is that sort of the trend? It is the trend. I mean, we, as you know, started out as a bike company, um, and so we were we always had in the pipeline to offer additional modes of transit. We had a traditional bike. We had just started to introduce an electric bike, and then introduce the scooter. And when we looked at the uh, unit economics of the scooter, when we looked at the popularity of the scooter. The flexibility within markets of the scooter, it was uh, night and day, and, and we are virtually entirely um, um, a scooter company, um, it, but for a few markets where we operate electric bikes. Hmm. That's crazy. Um, one of the things that I want to talk about is just scaling, and I think you said two and a half years ago. Is that when you sort of started? Yeah, it was two years, three months. Which yeah. is so fast. Like, it, it blows my mind. Can you talk a little bit about how Lime approaches scaling in sort of new cities and communities? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to really put your finger on it because there's so many, so, so many different ways to answer that question. But we have obviously grown very, very quickly. We have been in a very competitive environment um, where there are others that have been interested in this space. I mean, there were a number of Chinese competitors that came to the United States right as we started the company um, where we wanted to be operating in U.S. markets. And so we had um, significant competition from the get-go. Um, I'm happy to say that, that we have done quite well compared to those competitors. Um, but, you know, we, we have raised money every six months um, because of the necessity of, of, of growing, of scaling. We have gone from six employees to over 600 
in, in that period of time. And, you know, we've been very deliberate about trying to keep a company culture together. And we can talk about different ways to do that when you're growing that quickly and you're growing across the globe. Um, but it's, you know, we have had a sort of a relentless drive towards growing into new markets because we know it's a competitive landscape. And we also know that the more markets that experience the service, the more and faster the adoption is. And so it, it sort of has, in many ways, happened both deliberately and very organically. Yeah, and it, and I'm sure it looks a little different with every city. And was there, you know, if you were to kind of picture in your head the map of what that looked like, is there any sort of rhyme or reason to it? Uh, I can picture that in my head because I was the one putting the dots on the map, <laughs> reporting into the team of where we were. I, I initially led government relations and market um, development. So um, absolutely. I mean, it, the rhyme or reason was initially we, we – worked very, very hard to find any market we possibly could. And it's actually somewhat ironic now, um, one of our first markets was in South Bend, Indiana, who, which is uh, obviously home to Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who's running for president at all of 37 years old. And in some ways, it's fitting, right? You've got this company that is looking for a market and to make its mark, you know, both uh, nationally and then hopefully globally, uh, even though global was sort of a seedling in our minds. And you had this mayor who said, yeah, I want mobility and I've been looking for this. And, and frankly, most companies have bypassed us and we took a bet on South Bend, Indiana. And so that was one of our very first markets. And um, that map, um, you know, grew very quickly, but it, we, we ended up going to a lot of markets that were far, far smaller than you might want to go to when you looked at, you know, a potential ledger of where you could make the most money. You know, we when we first started the company, I remember very specifically Toby, our CEO. I was actually here in Burlington still. You know, he, can you get a Chicago? How about New York? How about Boston? And we obviously wanted those markets, and he was dead right that that's where we needed to be. It turned out that we really worked hard with some smaller markets to build credibility, build a reputation, test, and then right? test the yeah, product. A faster to get there, right? Absolutely. Were these college towns? Uh, some of them were college yeah. towns, some of, them, some of them weren't. Some of them were actually colleges themselves. One of our early markets was University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And mm. we got into the campus, and then the city said, oh, yeah, we'll take that too. In the case of South Bend, it was the opposite. It was South Bend to the city saying it, and Notre Dame saying, oh, yeah, we'll take that too. So it was, a, 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 I would say, a very scrappy, creative um, process, the, those first eight to ten months, getting into markets to prove the product before we were able to get into some of the, the, the bigger markets. Yeah, and you, you talked about the mayor of St. Louis and the mayor of uh, South Bend. Can you talk a little bit or maybe give us a few more anecdotes of how Lyme has impacted some of these cities? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's a hard one because, I mean, in some ways, you know, I could tell you some global figures and I could, you know, we could drill down into some local um, figures. But, I mean, I think one of the more exciting things in terms of impact is, let's take, a, take for example, Seattle. That was one of our early big markets. You've seen a city like Seattle where after a year of operating, we had over a million rides. Um, two-thirds of people who had taken our product to or from public transportation. So our impact on buoying public transportation is quite significant. Oh, wow. Also a city that has used our data and used our trip data to make public improvements like bike lanes. Oh, so you've got all these people who are out there now, you know, a million-plus rides. You've got infrastructure being changed. You've got 
public services like public transit being impacted in a positive way. So I think that's a you know that's a specific city that has major congestion issues and major growth issues, um, and I think is you know it's one of those things that we hear replicated around the globe now. So you can provide some of the data on where and how people are riding these to the city so they can sort of change their infrastructure? Yeah, so really early on, that was one of the important pitches that we identified as being important to cities. They said, well, you're, you know, you're going to use our public right away, and what do we get out of this? And a number of very important benefits from the improved mobility, but another one was how can they use data to make roads safer, make them more integrated, um, and so that's something that we've given. Obviously, anonymous, you don't, they don't get individual data from, from individual trips, but we aggregate that so that they can decide where it makes sense to put a lane. Does it make sense to have a protected lane because everyone's turning left at this intersection or right. turning right? And you know what? That makes us really excited because we want to change mobility in cities. We don't just want to operate in cities, right? And that was, that's a pretty bike-friendly city to begin with, yes. right? So the fact that they were thinking about the next level will provide all sorts of examples for the rest of us that are trying to get bike lanes or figure out do we yes. need more cars downtown or or how do we get people from from a to b so yeah i mean interestingly seattle very bike friendly city but the the business opening for us was that they had been paying for and supporting a public bike share program that was failing and it was costing the city taxpayers over and over again and we were able to come in and say look we can operate this without any expenditure, public expenditure. And that was the big hook, right? that we could come in and operate a service that wasn't going to take taxpayer money. Great. And, and how, uh, until you landed the big city, right, how many of the smaller city test case, reference cases did you really um, have under your belt? We probably had about a dozen. I would say, I mean, Seattle was a fairly early big city. So they came on um, early um, and then we were able to get, um, get get the opportunity to operate in South LA in a, a council district in South LA. Um, but those were the first two major U.S. markets where we operated, and then the rest were Key Biscayne, Florida, outside of Miami, mm-hmm. South Bend, Indiana, Greensboro, North Carolina. I mean, it's not it's not that yeah. different than I don't pick a software company or one of our product companies. You know, go get a one or two dozen early accounts, and then you go land Walmart or whatever the the big buyer might right. be. So you get that. Yeah, you've got we we sat down um, with the mayor of Philadelphia, uh, Mayor Michael Nutter, who. Um, was early on advising a bit, and he was really, really clear. He said, crawl, walk, run. And he repeated it again, crawl, walk, run. And everyone on the team wanted to run, right? Everyone on the team wanted to run. But that was some sage advice, right? We needed to, to, to do the crawl before we could start the, start the run. Are, are you running now? Is we're this, running. Okay, I, so, I would say it's fair to say let, let me just. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, we it, haven't hit the pace. Let me, let me be clear. Yeah. We're still picking up, st- up steam. Still, so, oh, for sure. The yeah, curve we're just is warming steeping. up. We're just well, I, I saw an Axios graph that was put out that was stunning, right? And, you know, in just over two years, the company's raised over $750 million in capital uh, per crunch base. Uh, and in fi- it took Uber five years to get to 50 million rides. Lime did it in 18 months to reach 50 million. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty big growth. Like, wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, how much of that do you attribute to? The scooter, or were people sort of um, already familiar with the on-demand using my, my mobile phone for mobility? Because, you know, again, your Uber was sort of the pioneer in getting us to think like that and Lyft to some exa- extent. So 
Yeah, that's a great question. No one's actually ever asked that. Um, and I do think you're, you're, you're right that people ha had come, become used to in the period between, you know, maybe probably in the last five years, um, to ordering a service, whether it be a car or even groceries now on their phone and, and having a service that they could, you know, depend on that was at a touch of a button. Um, I do think that there is some magic behind the scooter, um, in particular for the, for the reason that most riders will see, and I don't know how, what your experience was in Austin and in, in Baltimore, you'll see it on the sidewalk, parked there, and you'll go, oh, that's, that's for me. Like, I can use that. Like, it wasn't that you had your first experience in, like, a digital sense, downloaded the app, we're just waiting to, other than David. David probably was waiting to click the line <laughs> button. But I, most people will see it in the market and say, you know what, I wanna, I'm going to give that a shot. They see two, and they're like, hey, want to take this instead of uh, an Uber or a Lyft? I didn't go for the Austin Music Festival. I went to ride the uh, line. Of course, and, yeah. and they have a couple beers, too. But and culture. It was a culture trip for right, me. Right, right. So I, I think you're right that there's it was a little bit of people just being ready to demand a service, and then I think there is this something special about seeing a scooter that is so accessible. It's oh, well, right and it wasn't this elitist on. black card thing. I mean, right? Remember Correct, yeah. when Uber came out and Lyft? It was a you know higher end, fifty dollar. I can't afford the limo. Let me get sort of a nice privately driven car, and and, and right. kind of went down market after after that, or more accessible after that. Um, yeah. And speaking of accessibility, ours has. We have the you know, dollar to unlock, right? That's was the sort of foundation of the company was that to start using the service, it was going to cost you a dollar. In fact, the first rides were usually free, but but all of, all of the early early uh, early generation products said one dollar, and people felt like they could take a ride, and they and, did. And I don't think we really said that. You download the app, okay? You get a map, you see where the scooters are. Yep. You you. Often they're in front of you. If not, it might be around the corner where the last person left it. You go, you unlock it with your phone. You just tap it. Yeah, scan a QR code. Yep. We're working on another tap okay, technology okay, as great. well. But you scan the QR code, and usually it scans even before you think you're close enough to it to scan. Yeah, and it tells you how much battery's in it, which right. I never ran into an issue. And then you, you just take it to wherever you want to go and, and uh, Leave it use when the kickstand and done. It had nice lights, and the braking was, was pretty... Uh, easy so yeah so we we people click a button to lock it and then one thing we do with the scooters you probably experience this is we have people take a picture of uh, parking the scooter and that's really just to remind people about smart parking we work really hard with city partners on how to park smartly and that means you know parking right. it outside of the way of pedestrian travel um you know, and there's often plenty of space on sidewalks to do that, and so we have people take a picture just to remind yeah, them. There's definitely like. a little like uh, etiquette yeah. sort of uh, learning going on. And people together. get it. Yeah. People get it over time. Like you go into a market, it's brand new, and over time, people really figure out the norms. I mean, for example, I was living in in Oakland when we were out west, and there is a scooter or more on every block face downtown, and. 99% of them, and this is actually conforms with studies that have been done as well, they're almost always parked well. There are a few that sometimes aren't, but you know what? There are a lot of things if you look around in a, city, like cars. a city environment. That, <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you for making there's that point for me. There's a lot of boots on cars, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah, or cars that are you know blocking bike lanes or cars that are – or trucks that are stopped to do deliveries. Like there's a lot that goes on in an urban environment. Uh, because it's new, it gets more scrutiny, and it means that we have to be all the more careful. Yeah. So speaking of being careful, I mean, I've been a little freaked out to use Uber lately and, and Lyft. You know, there's some scary stuff happening in, in the news recently. And, um, you know, safety aside, I, 
if you're ride sharing in a car like Uber or Lyft, you're still in a car, right? So you being head of sustainability, I think it's time to talk a little bit about sustainability. So what um, what does that sort of look like for Lime? And, and can you talk a little bit about the impact there? Yeah, I think it obviously gets me excited. So I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I think the impact of our service uh, can be absolutely huge. I mean, we are zero emissions. We charge on renewable energy. And we are offsetting in markets across the globe now car trips that would otherwise be taken. So we just surpassed our 50 millionth ride. And that has offset more than 15,000 miles of car trips. And the way we know that is we survey our riders and from, from time to time, we actually hired a researcher from University of California Davis so we could get really smart about this stuff. And, and we do surveys and we found that approximately one third, and that's actually much higher in some, other, in some US cities, one third of our riders, if they hadn't had a scooter in front of them or hadn't had a scooter around the block, they would have taken a personal car ride hail or ride share. So they would have taken a vehicle. And we all know vehicles are one, two pound, mostly gas burning cars. And so the carbon impact is huge. We've, oh, it's increased the congestion in, yes. in these big cities, right? New York has talked about that. Absolutely. So we've saved over 6,000 tons of carbon in just the first 50, 50 million rides. How do you sleep at night with that guilt? I, I know, it's yeah. tough. <laughs> um, but but the, you know, the congestion in cities is increasing. Um, and that that only increases the amount of cars that are sitting and idling. So I think it's just, I mean, and we're just getting started. I mean, we will hopefully be having 50 million ride months and 50 million ride weeks. And uh, so the impact that it can have on cities, I think, is enormous. And the longer term picture is how can we change what cities look like for the future when they have access to micromobility options? You're already seeing dozens of cities contemplating or having passed bans on vehicles in certain downtown core areas. Right. Take Oslo, for example. Businesses actually have reported that they love it because it actually increases foot traffic and there aren't parking issues. So how can we as a company help um, expedite the transformation of our urban environment? And um, I think it's just really exciting. I mean, I think there's also equity issues around um, around our service where, as we were talking about earlier, people with with lower means or that are underserved, for example, there are transportation deserts all over um, the U.S. And, and, and globally where people just don't have access to public transportation. So they have access to a scooter and they get to a bus faster so they don't have to do two different stop, you know, two different bus lines or the train, et cetera. It's, it, it could be a game changer for folks. So yeah, I mean, $3 a day to get to and from work. Right. Right. Is it so much uh, cheaper than any other alternative other than maybe walking? Absolutely. And but, we hear all the time about people that, you know, that it has changed their lives. It saved them a half an hour in commute time or um, people now could even contemplate you know, not living right on the bus line or on the at the train stop in urban environments where usually you're paying top dollar to live within half a mile of any of those services. You could live a mile out and, and scoot right in and actually pay probably, you know, half the mortgage costs. So it, it, I think it has a chance of, 
of being a real game changer in cities in a real positive way. And I mean, even personally, I, I lived in Boston and when I moved out, I was like, oh my God, I would never live in a city again. I hated it. And mostly that's because of the red line. Thanks, Boston. Um, but Sorry, you were on the green line. Yeah, well, the red to green, the, Dave, is really the transition. The red line try is, waiting I had no, for the, I only had two issues over the years on the red line. Listen, and, Dave, and you was, try waiting for the E line at Park Street when it's 98 degrees in I'm January, do it. right? Sick day. You guys so, both definitely need scooters, don't you? You really like, do. can tell that you guys <laughs> But I, you know, when I was using a Lime scooter, I was like, I, I could, maybe I could do the city thing. I was like, that it's, when you don't have to wait 45 minutes on a train to get two miles, you know, it's like this is a totally different way to look at the city. Yeah. So Vermont's rural, right? Even our cities are pretty, pretty darn small. Like, does Lyme work in a community like this? Like, I mean, the cost of travel is such a a burden um, for so many to get to where their jobs are, to get to grocery or to get to daycare. Like, have you done these smaller markets where there's, you know, maybe, I don't know what the maximum, you know, transit would look like. Can you go five miles in this or is it mostly a one or two mile trip? Yeah, it is. It is really a one to two mile distance. I mean, you, you that's the use cases sort of, you know, we might do products that can expand beyond that over time. Um, but right now, we're really focused on bigger markets and really hammering on the unit economics around those bigger markets. It's in, I mean, speaking of sustainability, it's really important as a company to figure out and dial in on the economics to make sure that the markets that we're in are good markets and we're operating them well. So that's really our sweet spot right now. I mean, Paris right now is our biggest market um, and we're expanding in Europe and, and Asia and South America. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I think as technology is adopted, as, as hardware is improved, who, who, you knows? Know, who knows? Right. Who knows? Right. And sure other ho- modalities, too. I sure hope I mean, so. Yeah. I, I'm like a, a huge fan of like Ollie, you know, the, the sort of light bus kind of self-driving vehicles like that. I think uh, those have a place as you develop these new systems. Yeah, there's a huge transformation in mobility. and And I think, I mean, having been in the solar industry before this, it's exciting to see it, but it's really relying around or revolving around rather electrification, right? How do you electrify a little two-seater car? How do you electrify a scooter? Or how do you electrify buses? And I know um, the area is getting some Proterra buses, which are totally phenomenal buses. And, you know, I think, you know, there's just so much going on in cleaning transportation and making it more accessible, um, both the big modes like a big bus and the small modes like a scooter. Uh, Keep doing it faster because I can't wait to not buy a car. Right. Yeah, I, a lot of people are wondering, like, when I hear this conversation come up a lot, like, when their last car will be. Or, right. And I, I don't think it's that far. I've heard statistics that in, in 10 years, um, 80% of people that own cars now will not own them. So we have a lot of work to do between now and then, but that's a pretty exciting transformation in just a decade. Yeah. Or if you're going to own a car, make it a fun one, not a right. commuter car, maybe. So, so there's other mobility companies out there other scooter companies doing their thing what makes lime the best great question um a number of things i mean i i have to say our team is totally a kick butt team that works so hard around the globe literally 24 7 now uh even when we were just in the united states it was 24 (laughs) 7 um but i think it's a really special movement that we're creating i think 
we do view ourselves as being more than a scooter company. It, we don't think it's just about the physical product or the hardware product of a scooter um, and that we want to be doing something more for cities that we're operating. But I also think there, you know, you mentioned how much we've had to raise uh, to, to grow the business. There's something really hard about doing this well. And it's, it takes capital, it takes investment, and you, you don't think about the complexities of running a program. But, um, you know, we have to have a good product, a hardware product that people like. We have a consumer app that people use to access our product every day. We have a operations app that our staff that are on the ground in those markets used to operate the service. And then we have what we call a juicing app, which is the people that bring in our scooters and charge them for us um, in, their, in their homes or in their businesses. So across three different uh, software products and a hardware product, we've got to get all of those things right to have a successful business. And so um, in part, some of the cap- a lot of the capital has gone into R&D. And Your logistics sure business, right. like UPS yes. or something like that as well. So we've worked really hard to dial all those things in. Hey, um, you've been around Vermont quite a bit. We're glad to have you back here too. It's great to be back. I love um, it. Welcome home. Any other Vermont companies that you sort of admire or that run up top of your list that you say, oh, that's an awesome firm? I mean, lots of them. I, I mean, I've always loved Ben and Jerry's. It was my first job out of high school. I was working at the factory there, giving tours. And I mean, you know, it had nothing to do with the three free oh, pints per shift, right? And yeah. I, I ate a good chunk of those three pints. I was training for cross country ski racing uh, in college at the time, so I, I could handle it. Not anymore. Um, you know, I think. I mean, so it's just always been a company that has a lot of heart and soul, um, and I think they've done a phenomenal job, even after uh, being acquired, of maintaining that. So I think you know you can't, you know, think about a Vermont business without thinking of them as as really charting a lot of really cool um, things that the globe paid attention to. Um, in terms of other companies, you know, I, like I've always just been totally impressed with the scrappiness of of Vermont businesses, whether it be like Pete Johnson up in Greensboro, um, the, all the folks, you know, that are up in Hardwick doing cool things. I mean, I just, I think there's just a lot of ingenuity and a lot of sort of excitement around, um, make, you know, making a good product, running a good business. And I think there are a lot of people doing really great things around here. Great. Dave. Yep. The time's come. Uh, we don't, we, well, do we have scooters out back? Is that, is this a surprise? No, I wish. Darn it. It's just, Sorry, guys. It's N- just next time the I, next stupid time magic wand question. With scooters. All right, go okay. for it, Sam. All right, Andrew. This if is you tough. had I know, a I know magic coming, wand <laughs> and you could change one thing about Vermont today, what would it be? I've talked to Dave about this a little bit, um, but I think having been out in the Bay Area, and I wouldn't trade being back for anything. We're totally thrilled to be here. But there is a culture and environment around entrepreneurship, around starting businesses, around hiring and bringing on the best talent that I'd love to see in Vermont. I don't know the one thing that does that, but I actually think it's sort of a a, a buckshot type of approach. But I think it's everything from having the right investors and capital that people know will be here when you start your business to having happy hour after work so people can trade ideas and meet good people that they might want to hire and it is everything in between there so i'm not sure how to maybe the two of you guys can come up with a how to summarize what that looks like but i would just love to see um, 
incubated and you know must it has to be a little more deliberate than what we have going on you guys are doing a great job here with creating that but outside of these four walls and the work that you guys are doing um, I think it's it's the start of creating a culture that people feel like they can start a business here they'll hire people here they'll meet people here to be able to be successful and, and grow their businesses love it amen all right amen to that what's it going to take well having people like you around for sure we well, have like 10 people lined up outside the door waiting for mentorship. So. I'll do what I can to help. It's, <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's going to take uh, folks like you coming home and uh, wanting to keep doing it over and over. And, well, and we have those folks here. And it's, it's really, um, we're never going to get there. We're going to keep trying. You know, the goalposts always keep getting a little bit farther along. And I think the more we connect people, places, and capital under yeah. some regular programming, regular excuse to, to share ideas, uh, we'll get there. And, um, Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing a little bit of the Lime story. Um, I'm somewhat disappointed you didn't listen to my advice, but I'm, I'm pretty psyched for the world and humanity that, that you went off to Lime. So. Well, it's great to chat with you guys, and I think you guys are doing great work up here and, and hope more folks come your way because I think it's an exciting uh, environment to be you know, creating new businesses and, and doing good work here. Well, thanks for building it here and there. That's what we like to see. Boom. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series has been made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. Follow us on Twitter at VSET, that's V-C-E-T. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to work. On a scooter.